0: Thank you for your attention through a time to preach God's Word and hear it brought to us. The title of today's message is Walking Out Life in Christ and we're going to be turning to Romans chapter 6 uh, as we continue through our series in the book of Romans. And let me pray before we turn there. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that we have it recorded and you've given us context in which we can learn I pray this morning you would help me communicate your word faithfully and clearly and you would help all of us to hear and receive the significant truths the amazing truths that are contained in your word to us Lord, we thank you for speaking we thank you for giving us your son Jesus Christ because of him we have great hope and confidence that we can hear and receive and be transformed by your word to us this morning and that is our prayer In Christ's name, amen. On a dark evening, one early December day in 1926, a well-known lady in English society said goodnight to her husband and her seven-year-old daughter and left her home in the south of England, and she did not return. The following day, her car was found crashed in a ditch, but the lady was not to be found anywhere nearby. Police hunted for her. A reward was posted for information that would help locate her. For over a week, the country was left wondering about the disappearance of this famous woman. In fact, news spread around the world and even made front-page news of the New York Times. Eventually, 11 days after her disappearance, someone recognized a woman staying in a hotel in the north of England as being the missing lady, this hotel being some 200 miles north of where she was last seen. When police came to meet her, they found that she had no memory of who she was or any memory of how she got there how she traveled those many miles to the hotel in which they found her. Fortunately, though, with rest and recuperation, her memory of who she was, at least, returned to her. And she went on to continue her career that had brought her fame up to that point. Had she not been found, had she not been restored to her family, had she not recovered her memory of who she was... We might never have had the novels, the murder on the Orient Express, and then there were none, or death on the Nile. As the lady in question was Agatha Christie, who went on to become the best-selling fiction writer of all time. I share that illustration at the beginning because of the significance that it communicates to us, the importance of knowing who you are. And how that shapes how you walk out all of life in that knowledge. Or, conversely, not knowing who you are can have dramatic and ser- serious consequences for how you think about yourselves and how you walk out life in the gap of that knowledge of who you really are. In our passage today in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is responding to a challenge leveled at him because of all of his teachings so far in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. And the essence of his answer to that challenge is the critical necessity of believers knowing who they are in Christ. In chapter 6, Paul moves on from what's been his focus through chapters 1 to 5, namely the the desperate state of all mankind in their sin and their rebellion against God and his astonishing forgiveness and his grace for God to count sinners like you and me righteous and justified in his sight. If we look to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and trust that when he died on the cross, he did so to bear my guilt and my shame and my punishment, And that God grants new life through Christ. The lead-in to our passage today comes at the end of chapter 5 in verse 20, which we heard about last week. When Paul says, Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. As pastor Paul said last week, grace super duper abounded over all of our sin. Now, the apostle Paul is aware that this teaching invites a key question about the Christian faith. A question that can be both asked both as an attack to the faith from without from outside the faith, but a question that can also be asked as a genuine wrestling from those who are inside the faith. The question is simply, does sin matter anymore for the Christian? Does sin matter anymore for the Christian? From outside the faith, it can come as an attack. And Paul has already shared that in Romans chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just to that question paul offers chapter 6 as an apologetic to his critics for his teaching not an apology but an apologetic and argued defense in order in a defense of his doctrine and of his teaching but paul is also a pastor and he is aware of the internal questioning, the internal wrestling of those in the faith that all Christians face at different times and with different intensities. Not an abstract wrestling about some uh, philosophical problem, but a deeply personal wrestling in our souls over temptations to sin. Sin that seems to be just right in front of us, And persistently poking at us, goading us with questions like, why not? No one will know. It's not a huge sin. What will it matter? Besides, God will forgive you. Out of pastoral care for the Roman Christians, and out of God's kind provision to us today, Paul offers help through chapter 6, and as we'll see in the next few weeks, through chapter 7 as well. well. Help centered on the Christian knowing who they are in Christ. So let's turn to our text, and heeding my mother's advice to take small mouthfuls and chew slowly, we're going to break the chapter into two parts. And first of all, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And look at those two parts of the passage Both of which essentially asking the same question, why not sin? So look with me in verses 1 through 14. It will be projected. Uh, If you have a Bible, I encourage you to have that in front of you and keep it open. Um, If you don't have a Bible, then we'd love to get one to you. Uh, There are some at the back there, different places. Um, Just raise your hand. We'd love to get one to you. But let's read uh, chapter 6, verses 1 on onwards. Paul writes, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So the first question that we're looking at this morning. The first take on that general question of why not sin is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Or why not sin more to show more of God's amazing grace? Paul's answer, both here in verse 3 and his answer to the second part of the question, which he starts in verse 16, they both begin with, don't you know don't you know? So Paul's response to the question is that there is an error or a gap in the questioner's thinking or in their knowledge. A gap which he will proceed to fill or correct. But before we get to his teaching, notice that that's not Paul's immediate response. His first response to the question is, by no means Paul's got a theological answer to give to the question. But it's not an answer that simply resides in Paul's mind. And he's not hoping simply to transfer what he knows into the minds of his hearers. Paul's response is with his whole being and bursts with emotion. Of course not. So it's important that we see from the beginning that Paul's answer is meant to grip us. It is meant to grip us like it grips him. He is not imparting the right answer so that we can do well in some sort of test that we might get. He's not looking to impart the right answer so that we can give the right answer if anybody questions us. Although it does do that. Paul wants us to be shaped and gripped by these truths just as he is shaped and gripped by these truths And as we'll see it, it is vital that we are gripped by these truths in order to walk out our faith as God intends for his children. Having said that, let's now look at what Paul wants to teach us. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, he says? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul's argument starts with the Christian knowing that they have been baptized into Christ Jesus, united with him. And in being united with him, they have been united with him in his death. Chapter 6 of Romans actually is the beginning of Paul beginning to use an expression throughout his letter, an expression which he uses throughout all of his letters, to describe Christians. It's not an expression that we tend to use all that much, which is strange because it is throughout the New Testament. We actually have no record of Paul calling Christians, Christians. And he only calls believers, believers, Fewer than ten times through his letters. Rather, Paul repeatedly refers to Christians with one phrase. It is those who are in Christ. And he does so, so throughout Romans and throughout his letters. I'll just give you a few examples from, just from Romans, just to see what I'm talking about. A couple of verses, particularly in our passage in chapter 6 today. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then later we'll see in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Later in chapter 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 12 verse 5. We though many are one body. In Christ, and individually members one of another. And finally, in the last chapter, chapter 16, verse 7 Greet Adronicus and Junior, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, before getting to what it means for a person to be in Christ and how that shapes our answer to the question about, should we embrace more sin to highlight God's grace? Let's consider first what Paul says about how someone is united to Christ and finds themselves in Christ. And the answer in verse 3 and verse 4 is by baptism. Now, remember, Paul has spent the first five chapters of this letter explaining how we all fall short of God's standards and his glory, and that there is nothing we can do, whether by our action or by our attitude, that can make us right with God. We are only saved through Jesus Christ, trusting in his death for us, for our sins and in our place. So Paul is certainly not now suddenly switching track and saying that you are saved by being baptised. That is not what Paul is implying here. Rather, Paul is using baptism to refer to the Christian's initial regeneration at conversion. Another biblical description would be being born again. And water baptism is the outward sign of this spiritual reality for the believer. Paul says that at conversion, the Christian is united to Christ and our lives become inextricably connected. I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. Being a Christian doesn't simply mean that we get to enjoy the benefits of what Christ has accomplished for us through the Gospel. Like some remote, third-party transaction. Like, you might get a call from the bank to say that someone has very kindly come in and paid off your loan. That's good news, but You're in no way connected to whoever that generous individual was. It's been said of the Christian faith that you cannot separate Christ and his benefits. If you want justification that Christ offers in the gospel, you must accept Christ. If you want adoption as sons and daughters of God that Christ offers through the gospel, you must accept Christ. Christ, If you want to grow in holiness and in purity through Christ's power in the gospel, you must accept Christ. And here, in this passage, Paul wants us to know that Christ's death for us was not simply a remote historical event that happened some 2,000 years ago that you can still lay some claim to its benefit. Rather, as believers, you and I are united to him in his death on the cross in a very real and very personal way. And why is this so important to understand? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in verses 6 and 7. He says, we know that the old self, our old self, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul's saying that the believer united to Christ, as Jesus was crucified, our old selves were crucified with him. Some translations say the old man. And there is a two-fold reality to the truth that my old self was crucified with Christ. Before my conversion, there was an old Toby who didn't know God and didn't want to know God. He was very content to live life on his terms and he was oblivious to the obligation upon him to love and to worship his creator. And he was oblivious to the condemnation that lay before him for his arrogance and for his sin. But as we heard last Sunday from Romans chapter 5, old Toby also had Adam's DNA running through him. Physical and spiritual DNA that was corrupted ever since that first sin in the Garden of Eden. And Paul tells us that old sinful Toby with old fallen Adam's DNA died. He died when he was united to Christ in Christ's death on the cross. And that death set Toby free from sin. And as happy as I am to tell you about that, I am even happier to tell you that that is true for all who are in Christ Jesus. The word translated in that verse, set free in the original language is the same that we've been hearing through a lot of verses one through chapters one through five. It's the same word that's translated "justified," or counted righteous when Christ died on the cross and our old selves died with him, all that our holy God demanded for justice for our sin was met and was satisfied. The penalty for our sin was paid once and for all, as it says in verse 10. We were set free, released from sin's debt. It has no outstanding claim upon us which is all well and good, but not if you're dead and that you can't then enjoy your freedom. If we remained dead with Christ, what freedom exactly would we have? But that's not the case. As verse 5 says, For we, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The reality of our union with Christ in his death is so important to understand. But so too is knowing our union with him in his resurrection. And Paul wants us to know that you always have both. There is no other possible outcome for a believer to be united with Christ in his death other than to be united with him in his glorious resurrection to new life. Again in verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What fantastic news that is. That the old self with Adam's DNA has died with Christ. And that the new self rises with Christ to new life with Christ's DNA of our glorious Saviour, running through us. As verse 9 says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It's important to see, though, one thing about this participation in Christ's resurrection, lest we compare the truth of our reality Of our experience with sin, with what seems to be said in these verses, or what could be interpreted, and actually become discouraged. Notice the tense of verse 5. Paul says, We shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. For the believer, our union with Christ is complete, it is complete. But our experience of his resurrected life is incomplete for now. We are no longer bound under sin's penalty. And sin's power of death is broken. Sin has been fully and finally dethroned from our lives. But sin has not yet been fully evicted from our lives. The Apostle is going to go on to say a lot more about this tension in the life of a believer in chapter 7, which we'll come to in a few weeks. But here, at least, he goes on in verses 11 onwards. He says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul saying, Know who you are. Know that because you are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, Sin has been dethroned in your life. So he goes on, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For the Christian... It is incongruous to be united with Christ in his death for our sin and in his new life to God and at the same time continue to embrace sin. Let me try an illustration. And I choose this illustration carefully, aware that it could be intensely personal illustration for some but I use it because it is an intensely personal and serious subject for every one of us to grasp. So imagine that you have been diagnosed with cancer, and it is severe. Pretty quickly, cancer takes over your life and dictates everything about you. What you can do, what you can't do. What you can eat what you can't eat, what pills you must take and when you must take them, what doctor's appointments you must have and when you must have them, what treatments you must have and when you must have them. This becomes the pattern of your life until it gets to the point when you can't really remember what life was like before cancer. You can't imagine a life now without a routine of pills, of enforced rest, of treatments, and of appointments. But then one day, doctors tell you that they're going to try a new treatment. And they're cautiously optimistic about the potential results. So you try this new treatment, and miraculously it exceeds the doctor's doctor's wildest expectations. It rapidly and completely eradicates the cancer cells from within your body and within a very short space of time, the doctors give you a completely perfect bill of health and tell you that they don't need to see you anymore. Wouldn't that be amazing? But wouldn't it also be absurd if if you felt like you were obliged to continue in the same way of life as when you had cancer? That you felt duty-bound somehow to continue taking pills on the same frequency as you did before? That you felt obliged to continue to limit yourself from those things that you couldn't do before, even though you now have the strength to do them? That you felt obliged to continue to keep the same cycle of doctor's appointments, even though they no longer needed to see you? Wouldn't you expect those closest to you to say to you, you know you don't have to do those things anymore, right? Cancer no longer dictates how you live your life. Cancer no longer has any hold over you. And so to our friend, the Apostle Paul says to the believer who feels somehow constrained, somehow obliged, somehow in bondage to continue in the way of the old self, in embracing sin. He says, you were buried. You were buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too might walk in newness of life. So you should consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson, has described baptism as a renaming ceremony. As we are united to Christ, we descend into the water to symbolize our death with Christ, bearing our old name assigned to us in Adam. And then we rise out of the water into the new life that we have in Christ Jesus as we are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, when we face temptations to sin, we must remember who we are, that we are in Christ. We can remember our baptism, not as a one-off event in our lives to draw strength from, as if I I must keep my commitment for however many years ago that was. But we can remember our baptism as a one-off event in Christ's life. His death on the cross for our sin. And our baptism as a sign of our union with him in his death and in his new life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you haven't yet been baptized, then you have a wonderful opportunity ahead of you. And hopefully this passage helps you see why baptism is so important in the life of a believer. So please, I encourage you, please do talk to me uh, after today's service or over the coming weeks. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, talk to you about baptism. Um, I think we have a baptism service planned for in the spring, and we'd love to arrange for how we can um, get you baptized then. But as believers, brothers and sisters, because you have died to sin, walk in the new life that is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul concludes this section in verse 14. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And that leads us straight into the second question of our passage, where Paul responds to a a slight twist on the same question, why not sin? So let's read the following verses, starting in verse 15. And we have, again, those to project. Paul says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in the previous verses, Paul was responding to the question, if if more sin means more grace and God gets more credit, why not sin? Now the question is turned just a little bit, and Paul's asking or answering the question, if we're not under the law but under grace, why does it matter if we sin? And to answer that question, Paul turns to an analogy of slavery. Now, for first century Romans, slavery was a far more common and relatable topic than it is for us today. We don't need to go into great detail, but there were several ways in which somebody might enter into slavery, and some of them actually could have been a person's choice, perhaps to pay off a debt that they couldn't pay otherwise. In some cases, it actually didn't look very much different from the relationship between an employer and an employee. And it actually carried with it the responsibility for the slave owner to take at least the basic provision and care for those who are in their charge. But the, the point that Paul is making here with this reference and analogy to slavery is that um, a, slave, a slave owes allegiance and obedience to their master. The point he's making is that slaves owe allegiance and obedience to their master. Now, he's not advocating for a choice of slaves. He's not offering up a choice for you to make at this point. Rather, he's advocating for a a slave to behave in a way which is fitting to their master, whether their master is sin or their master is God. We saw previously in the previous passage in verses 7 and 14 that the believer in Christ has been set free from sin and that sin no longer has dominion over us. But Paul doesn't mean that we're now free to become our own boss. In fact, that was the problem beforehand. We chose to be our own boss. Rather, we've been set free, saved by God's grace, to be aligned and obedient to God. And in that sense, we are slaves of God, slaves to his righteousness. So the verse 17 can be said of us, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Again, it's not that our obedience from the heart is perfect, but it is perceptible. It's there. It's present. Where previously, apart from God's workiness, There was nothing in us that wanted to obey God's work, God's will for us. So Paul's making a similar argument here as he was in verses 1 through 14 for the believer to know who they are. Previously to know we are in Christ, and here to know that we are slaves to God, to know who we belong to, and how absurd it would be as a slave to obey someone who wasn't your master. Somebody else is giving you instruction and direction. Why would you listen to the other guy who's no longer your master? Paul knows it's not a perfect illustration. That's why he says in verse 19, he's speaking in human terms. We don't get to choose our masters like we might change jobs. It's God's work in us to release us from the slavery of sin and to call us to himself and to make us slaves to his good and his right authority over us. But what Paul does in this section is he goes beyond what he said before. He goes on to compare what comes from obedience to sin with what comes from obedience to God. Speaking of our past obedience to sin, Paul says in verse 19, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Then on in verse 21. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Of course, sin isn't packaged like that, full of impurity and spiraling into more sin. Otherwise, few of us will be tempted to embrace it. But as believers in Christ, we have been shown behind the curtain, as it were. And we know that when sin sin says it's just this once, you'll enjoy it. Nothing bad will come from it. You and I both know those are lies. We know it's a lie because we have God's word on the matter. And we know it's a lie from our own foolish experiences. Experiences where the tantalizing promise of something Good, but forbidden, turns out to be fake. And instead, we find something full of impurity that's left us ashamed. I'm reminded of a brief scene from the movie Minority Report, starring Tom Cruise, if you've seen it. It's a sci-fi thriller in which Tom Cruise's character fights to clear his name and solve a crime. And in this futuristic world, everyone is identified by an eye scan. And so to remain undetected, he undergoes eye surgery. After surgery, while he's resting with his eyes protected with a blindfold, he makes his way to a refrigerator, where the kind of the backstreet surgeon has told him he's left him a nice fresh sandwich, and a nice cool bottle of milk. Unfortunately, The surgeon has forgotten to remove the extremely old, green, moldy sandwich that's next to it. And the nasty, rancid looking bottle of milk next to the new fresh one. And even if you haven't seen the movie, I think you can imagine what happens. Poor old, blind Tom, first grabs the gross, nasty sandwich, and takes a huge bite out of it. Which he then spits out across the floor, and in panic, grabs the wrong bottle of milk and takes a big old slug of that one only to spit that out across the fridge as well. Sin is like that. It promises something good and pleasant and leaves us with something foul and sickening. And sin does more than leave just a bad taste in the mouth. Verse 21, the end of verse 21. For the end of these things is death. And 23, the wages of sin is death. Paul wants to make very clear for those whose allegiance and obedience is to sin that there is one guaranteed outcome that sin will deliver. And it's death. Both physical death and spiritual death under Condemnation from God. Sin is deceptive, and sin is deceitful in what it offers. But in one aspect, sin is ever so faithful. Sin is ever so faithful. It is a faithful paymaster. It will never shortchange you, or refuse to pay in full what is deserved to those who give it their allegiance. It makes me think, (laughs) you'll wonder where my mind goes with these things, but it makes me think of a wily coyote cartoon. One in which where one of the hapless coyote's traps intended for the roadrunner backfires on him. I don't know if there's actually one like this, but I'm picturing a gift box placed beside the road and at the base of a very tall cliff and the coyote has rigged a rope around the box and run it up the cliff to a huge boulder at the top of the cliff. And, of course, Roadrunner comes along, does his little meep-meep, and then runs off, leaving the coyote to retrieve the box, forgetting that he's the trap that he's set, and then watching in despair as the boulder inevitably falls and plummets down upon him. Of course, in cartoons, Wiley Coyote lives another day. Real life isn't so comical. The wages of sin is death. And a commitment to sin comes with a rope attached. Sometimes it's a short rope, and death is just around the corner. Sometimes it's a long, long rope, as long as a lifetime. But it's still attached to a boulder that spells death and judgment before God. And it doesn't matter how smart we think we are. And it doesn't matter how much money we think we've got or anything else. Sin will ensure that we receive the payment that is ours if we are committed to sin. Fortunately and gratefully, Paul compares the fruit of sin... With the fruit of righteousness. In verse 22. He says. But now that you have been set free from sin. And have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. Sanctification meaning. Growing in holiness and impurity. And it's end eternal life. And in the end of 23. The free gift of God. Is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus said in in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come so that the sheep may have life and have life to the full. Nothing is sweeter than walking with our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and walking with him in his ways. And one day, at the end, we will know and experience the resurrected life in all its fullness without sin. (laughs) And we will be in his presence, and it will be the purest delight. Brothers and sisters, because sin promises death, walk in the newness of life that is yours in Christ Jesus. And if you're hearing this message this morning, maybe you're here in the building, maybe you're online, if you've not yet put your trust in Christ, I want you to know that you are in the same place as we have all been. We were all in a helpless position, in need of God's grace. But I beg you, please not, do not presume to know the length of the rope that God has attached to the sin in your life. The wages of sin is death. But there is a free gift, a free gift on offer to you and available through jesus christ it is him it is jesus christ who is the gift and in him united to him you will be free from sin free from the consequences of it and free to walk in the newness of life that comes knowing being in christ jesus you can accept and receive that this morning. And I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to converse with you. Answer any questions you may have. It's not a rush. There's no race. But it is important. It is a priority. So don't overlook addressing that question. For the rest of us, for those who have received Christ, God has a purpose for us in our union with him. And it is that we would walk in this newness of life. We must strive, we must make sure that we never forget that as believers we are in Christ. That we are united with him in his death and united with him in his new life. So because we have died to sin and because sin promises death, let us walk in the new life that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let me pray.